Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here on this show, we have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I started this podcast a few years ago because I like talking with and learning from other researchers. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And again, thanks for joining us. Today, I'm talking with Josh Breggy. Josh is a PhD candidate at IU Bloomington, researching paleo-hurricanes, that is, hurricanes from the past, paleoclimatology, that is, past climates, modern tropical cyclones, and coastal geology. You can find him on Twitter at prehistoric, that is, historic, not prehistoric, but prehistoric. Get it? Historic? Yeah, uh, so actually, we recorded this conversation a while ago, Back in November of last year, there were some production delays, but I'm bringing it to you now uh, in its full form. So I hope that you enjoy it. We talk about Thanksgiving and the change of weather. So there's a little bit of, a, you know, kind of dated talk in there, I guess, or talk from a different season. But that's fine. That's fine. That's okay. So I've spoken with Josh already on a previous episode. He did one of our disability episodes talking about his experiences with ADHD. So you might recognize his voice if you've been with the show for a little bit. Uh, by the way, Josh studies paleotempestology, and uh, this is the study of storms in the past. So he uses that word a few times. Uh, you might be hearing the dog barking there. I'm going to leave it in. And uh, paleotempestology, storms from the past. So that word shows up. You can think of Shakespeare's, you know, the tempest. That's the word that's being thrown around there, paleotempestology. Great. Okay. So again, you can find Josh on Twitter at prehistoric if you want to learn a little bit more about what he's been up to. And uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and get right into it. Here we go. Hey. Hi. Yeah. So good to see you good morning yeah likewise yeah it's a uh, yeah it is it's it is morning good afternoon thanks yeah i uh, it's good to see you again and uh, i appreciate you getting up so early to have a podcast chat with me i appreciate oh, yeah. that no it's, it's it's my pleasure cool yeah uh i thought we could do it later but that might actually truncate us a little bit because i do the school runs and whatnot okay um, so of course I'm just saying this for the listeners that we've already recorded a you know there was a disability episode that we recorded together with Caitlin Naughton a couple episodes ago and we said why don't we you know do a science chat paleo hurricanes that sounds so interesting to me <laughs> and uh, so here we are this is what we're doing now we're recording that chat yep but first let me ask how you doing you all right over there <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, well, at least after the election, I feel a lot better. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I mean, sure, sure. The current president is trying to undermine the democracy, but, um, you know, mm. once you look past that, I feel just this huge wave of relief. So, yeah, um, I don't, I have yeah. no expert opinion in this whatsoever, but a, a plausible, <laughs> A plausible explanation I've heard is that, well, the current administration is stalling for time as much as they can because they're trying to get rid of stuff. They're trying to yep. <laughs> cover some tracks, which, uh, yep. you know, okay, it's plausible to me. All right. I'm not a, I'm not a political commentator, so I'm not going to get too deep <laughs> into it, but like, 
yeah, I could see that. Yep. <laughs> They're covering yep. their Same tracks. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So exactly. You know. Uh, um, yeah, and of course, yeah. elect you know, electing two people into office isn't going to change everything, of course, but it's a really exactly it's a nice it's a very good step. It's certainly much better than the alternative. I had an idea just before we got on here. Mm-hmm. Is that for the purpose of the interview, I could like pretend I don't know what a hurricane is and you just tell me like everything about, you know, what a hurricane is and what they used to look like. I thought they could fair. be could be a fun um, Although uh, I, I will say I did just listen to the uh, the Dan Chavez episode. So that's true. Which was so, great. That was a good chat. Yeah, I was really I really appreciated his time um, mm-hmm. and his his perspective. And uh, we ended up having a little bit of a tropical cyclone mini series here, just by virtue of who we've happened to have on. That's I mean, true. okay. I guess Talia Mayo recommended Dan uh, Dan Chavas, so that's how we ended up there. Um, which is fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So of course, it's a. I do actually know a little bit. I at least know what they are in terms of they exist and they, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I wondered, is that a useful perspective for when you're trying to think about paleoclimate hurricanes and as Dan Chavas does sometimes, hurricanes on other planets. Like you must have to go back to that basic definition of like, well, what is a hurricane? What is a tropical cyclone to use the more general term anyway? Um, yeah, actually, I, I, I'd agree with that just because um, what's being recorded in the proxies really just kind of depends on, um, well, one, the proxy itself um, and where you're located. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess. With at least for the perspective of paleo hurricanes, we do have to kind of go back to that original definition and then kind of back out from there to, to look at them from a different angle, if you will. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So it is, it's like a, it's, it's a low pressure system, right? It's got some serious mm-hmm. low pressure in it, roughly in its center. And I guess they're, tro- they're called tropical mm-hmm. cyclones. So they usually, you know, f- form in the tropics. That's their origin. That, you know, you obviously exactly. can find them outside of the tropics, but they tend to form there. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess they must be above a certain size. Uh, and there must be a certain kind of dynamical balance that is expected to take place based on its size and on it, the kind of scaling there. Um, so yeah. Can you remind me why, why do they tend to form in the tropics? You know, why is that their origin? Is it something about that the planetary rotation isn't that strong there? Does that have something to do with, um, you know, why that's a formation? I'm sorry, I don't mean to like grill you. I was, <laughs> I wasn't intending to like. This isn't meant to be like a dynamics test. <laughs> Let's just say they're low pressure systems above a certain size, mm-hmm. and they have a certain coherence to them. That they, you know, have typically you know very strong winds and they have those winds spread out over a certain radius um you know something that dan shavas talked about is the the integ- an integrated measure of the winds that if you maybe you shouldn't just consider the maximum wind strength because the you know several you can you can think about hurricanes of different sizes could have that same wind strength and that maybe what's more important than the wind strength is that uh, this central pressure, how low that central pressure is. 
he said that there was a study that linked mm -hmm. economic damage to central pressure um, mm -hmm. because that was a better integrated measure of the strength of the whole storm as opposed to just you know where the winds happen to be really high um, mm -hmm. so I'm really just trying to set this up for us where we like so if that's what a hurricane is you know how do you what kind of fingerprints do these hurricanes leave in paleoclimate proxies, which, you know, just for the listener to editorialize a little to a proxy is if you can't measure the thing directly, a proxy is something that you can use to infer other mm -hmm. quantities. Um, for example, you know, we obviously can't go back a hundred thousand years into the past and measure the temperature, but we can measure um, ratios, isotope ratios, and you know, gas concentrations and things like that that we can use to uh, estimate what the temperature used to be you know, based on those kind of isotope ratios using well understood physical and chemical relationships that have been tested uh, all over the place and in labs and in natural settings as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you've got these powerful storms, big low pressure systems with strong winds uh, that tend to form in the tropics and then move to the subtropics where they cause most of their damage. How do you, uh, yeah, how do you look for the proxies? Or, uh, what, what proxies can you use to uh, infer the properties of these past hurricanes? So at, uh, the golden standard has largely been um, overwash deposits, so sediment deposits, you know, in, in coastal um, lakes and, hmm. and lagoons, um, back barrier environments, um, and then blue holes down in the Caribbean. And so, um, so they're kind of like these, they're basically like sinkholes, if you will, that, uh, form in these karst environments. Uh, and so I think the, probably the most well-known one is the great blue hole near Belize, I want to say, uh, near lighthouse reef there. And so, that's been the golden standard largely because what's what is actually happening is the storm surge is you know transporting that sediment and depositing it in a what would generally be a, a much quieter environment if you will hmm. oh right okay so so you know we're we're basically looking at it from a much different perspective than how we've defined it traditionally you know using instruments in the sort so you know, with sediment, and I guess you also are using microfossils, or you can use microfossils to kind of ground truth that, if you will. For tree rings, on the other hand, you know, you're you're typically responding, or the trees are typically responding to precipitation, hmm. and so um, you know, it's an entirely different hazard. Um, and actually, that's that's kind of been the issue in paleotempestology, is really trying to get that multi-proxy signal for a hurricane because the proxies are ultimately responding to different aspects of a storm so they don't necessarily match up wow. and so I like oh yeah term, sorry paleo tempestology that's great <laughs> i love that term. yeah <laughs> there's a whole wikipedia page on it and everything so awesome have you added to that have you are you an editor on wikipedia uh, no 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 actually uh but i am cited on it so oh, nice hey there you go which that's exciting i was like i i've, I've peaked so <laughs> no you've got a long time left you can <laughs> i'm sure you can get cited on a second wikipedia article somewhere as well i hope so <laughs> i um, hope so yeah so I was imagining, based on what you said, that you know hurricanes come in, they have storm surges associated with them, they push a lot of ocean uh, water 
onto the land into these typically freshwater lakes, um, deposit a bunch of sediment into them, and that sediment then sinks down to the bottom over time and adds to another layer to the the strata, like the this the set of um, layers that have been laid down over time. Exactly. And I'm guessing that, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that you probably can't tie it to like on the level of an individual storm, but instead you can kind of do the statistics of, oh, well, based on this density in these layers, we think that the hurricane activity or the storm surge activity was a little higher during this period, a little lower during this period, a little higher during this period. So is that roughly correct? You're getting the statistics of it. So generally, but we do have um, a modern analog approach. So um, so like with uh, one of my studies, it was like my first paper ever, you know, we used, uh, we developed an age depth model using both radiocarbon and cesium-137 um, with cesium-137 acting as like the indicator of, I want to say 1967, give or take a few years um, because of the, the, the bomb testing. Right. And so we were actually able to pinpoint or estimate which deposits were associated with Hurricane Katrina and which was associated with Hurricane Camille. Oh, you were. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, and so then we could use what we know from instrumental measurements of, of Katrina and Camille, as well as the sediment uh, measure properties of their, their deposit to actually go and plug in these values into our inverse model to actually go and recalculate or back calculate storm surge height. Um, mm. for these paleo hurricanes. Okay, so you might be able to do more than than you might think at, at an individual storm level, if they're big enough, I guess, if they're big enough to have exactly. a strong signal. So that's really fascinating. I didn't know that. You mentioned the bomb, nuclear bomb testing. <laughs> and just for folks who might not know, that the you know nuclear bomb tests carried out by the U.S. and um, I, think, I think the Soviet Union as well. Yeah. Uh, and a few other nations... Uh, left a very particular uh, imprint of isotopes you know, in the atmosphere, which then over time translated into isotope variations in water and on the land in terms of whatever could absorb that atmospheric imprint of the uh, isotope ratio, uh, basically. So you're saying that there was a way, because of those nuclear bomb tests, you had a very clear signal in your data mm -hmm. that, okay, Here's 19, he's a 67. There's like a specific year where you know a certain, um, you know, what, what you have a very uh, specific way to tie to it, tie it to a specific year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's really cool. So do you, do you talk about individual previous storms? Do you kind of say, oh, well, we, we have identified this one. Let's talk about this particular strong one. Like how much can you really say about a single storm? So um, at least from that record, the only storms, the individual storms that we uh, identified were Katrina and Camille. Um, right. And we went conserv conservatively and said, okay, well, we have a deposit here. It's possible that this is like an amalgamation of storms, but we're just going to treat it as one, one storm. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, including our modern storms, you know, we have 12 in that record. Um, so we do kind of roughly talk about individual storms saying, okay, well, evidently this storm uh, that happened, say, I don't know, 2000 years ago, 
hmm. uh, had a higher storm surge than Katrina because we know that sea level was lower. And for us to get a larger grain size in the same location as the Katrina deposit, it had to have had a higher or a stronger storm surge, if you will. Hmm. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's very impressive, I, I would say. I, I'm an adrenaline junkie, but I would not want to be on that coast at all <laughs> 2,000 years ago. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. This is just how Zoom works, right? And like you accidentally <laughs> step on each other's toes all the time. It's very right. awkward. Um, yeah, and in-person in recording is better in a lot of ways, but this lets us have a bigger you know, a wider pool of people and it also lets exactly. us be lower, lower carbon and less opportunistic in terms of just who happens to be around. So exactly. it's got lots of positives. So the trade-off for that is you awkwardly step on each other's toes constantly. <laughs> right. um, can you, so if you've got some paleo evidence of a particular strong storm, and maybe this isn't your field directly, but I was imagining you might be able to find some records, some like historical records talking about some of the previous storms. Do you, is that part of your, your work at all or part of work that you've, you're aware of? I try to, I, I'd like to dabble in that, um, especially because I have had really no use uh, for my Spanish degree so far. Mm. So, and I would like to dive into some of the Spanish records. Mm. But yeah, so that's, that's one way that you can go. Um, it kind of just depends on the resolution of your record, though. Um, with my sediment record, the resolution was way too coarse mm. um, because uh, the youngest storm uh, after Katrina and Camille, I think, happened about 600 years ago. So uh, that, that is a bit of an issue. But, you know, with my tree ring record, it's high enough resolution and covers right over um, the historical record that, you know, it does give me an opportunity to actually explore some of the historical documents. And, um, you know, there's one peak in my tree ring record that does seem to correspond to the 1888 Louisiana hurricane. Mm. So I have been diving into some of the very sparse li literature about that, um, including a reading a paper uh, from Monthly Weather Review that was published in like 1888 or 1889. So <laughs> That's going to be a fun thing to cite is you know, this ancient, you know, not ancient, but, you know, 1800s era <laughs> citation. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, I don't think they need the the citations anymore. I think they're they're probably they're probably done <laughs> done with that. But that's really awesome. What right. can we, can you say more about the tree ring? We we were just about to talk about the tree ring thing. How you said that your the tree rings respond to precipitation. Mm -hmm. So, and I guess I know it can the tree ring thickness can change based on the kind of annual rainfall. But you're saying that you might even be able to be more specific than that and tie it to particular storms that's really interesting can you say more about that yeah so um so with what, what i'm using is longleaf pine um down in southern mississippi and they're generally responding to just any kind of extreme precipitation hmm. and in the case of this area um, as well as north carolina where one of my advisors uh, also um, is working on some tree ring stuff um, they're responding to tropical cyclones because that's what's bringing in this just a ton of precipitation in a short amount of time. Mm. And so um, generally speaking, you don't, you're not able to tie it to um, individual events because what we're actually doing is reconstructing uh, precipitation estimates, like right. the actual seasonal precipitation amounts from hurricanes. 
I guess we're not actually able to distinguish between hurricanes and say a tropical storm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I had basically looked into um, HERDAT, uh, the hurricane database, um, and kind of looked at, okay, well, what storms were happening um, in this area, or at least thought to be, uh, to occur in this area? Do I see a peak? So it's, it's like really, really uh, coarse, um, I guess a coarse approach to it, but um, you know, one that at least is able to kind of identify a peak and a corresponding storm where we don't have any other tracks mm. um, that moved into the area. So <laughs> that's really the approach. It was more curiosity driven rather than, hey, this is going to be an entire section on this uh, in my paper. <laughs> yeah. So, so different tree species respond differently to the rainfall, I guess. So you have to know a bit about. Uh, how does this species respond to extreme rainfall? Where does that knowledge come from? How do you plug into that? That uh, like, where do you find those papers? <laughs> you know, admittedly, I'm still trying to to work that out myself. But I, I suppose that um, I can maybe put my ecology degree to a good use too. Mm. Um, I'm all over the map with this stuff, but um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it kind of just depends on. I mean, there's there's a broad understanding of of how at, at least at genus level how species respond, but it also depends on just where they're located. I know that a lot of pine species. Maybe I should just back out and say conifer species have been used for they've been used in monsoon reconstructions out west, but a lot of the stuff has just been kind of focused on temperature reconstructions. Hmm. And so, but my my advisor Justin Maxwell, he he works a lot with drought at least, and so this has been he's been the source I suppose that I go to for trying to figure out, hey, which trees respond to precipitation, which respond to temperature, uh, so which trees should I avoid um, mm-hmm. and go from there. But uh, nice. yeah, uh, plant biology is ne- has never been my strength. Um, and I, I'm like admittedly very proud of that for some reason. Well, <laughs> so, and what you're highlighting is that this science, this stuff is so complex that there's no way that just one person could be an expert in all of the relevant dimensions of that field that yeah exactly. we really do need proper interdisciplinary work you know tying together many areas of expertise like there's it sounds like there's no other way to make progress and uh this is pretty amazing i'm always amazed to talk to paleoclimate people and i think i said this on our disability episode um because you really can't be scared of error bars you can't be scared of like <laughs> long chains of logic where you're having to say, well, we can chain these three or four things together. And I think it's great. I think I'm glad that there are people doing it because how it's kind of magic, isn't it? If you think about, well, we can cut this tree down and using what we know about trees and rain, (laughs) we can make a statistical relationship. We can work out what uh, the rainfall pattern, broadly speaking, and maybe even specific storms. Well, you know, aggregates, like you said, Um, what they what they looked like yeah so it's it is it's um i don't want to say it's dicey it's a dicey field but um you know your whole field under the bus (laughs) right (laughs) i'm I'm always questioning the validity of the field because or at least (laughs) joking about it um like we don't actually know what's going on um which you know is is kind of true um to a degree well but you're careful I mean, but I've seen the error bars. You're careful to put those on there. You know, that, that's yeah, the point. I mean, you just we definitely mentioned the caveats. So. Yeah. yeah. And like the error bars represents the uncertainty in the approach. And we see what that is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, I think that's fair. 
science is more about you just show, well, here's what we know right now. And Mm -hmm. it might not be that much, but you kind of give, here's what our current knowledge is. And here's roughly the limits on that current knowledge. And that's, that's the process. That's, Exactly. That's what we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is, it is, I mean, you know, I, it's like, for example, my, my reconstruction model only captures about 40% of the variance, which, Mm -hmm. you know, to, I suppose most scientists that would be abysmally low, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, for paleoclimate, especially for something like paleotemistology, you just kind of have to be all right with that. Like, 40% of the variance is, is, is good, especially from like a single site perspective. Um, You know, I mean, there are other factors. It's not like hurricanes are the, like the, the only factor that's controlling tree growth. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you have, which we try to correct for, but you have biological processes. If a, if a tree falls in the woods, you know, I I almost said the, uh, (laughs) is anybody there? Does anybody hear it or anything? But uh, sorry, if a tree falls in the woods, you know, it it opens up the canopy and that reduces competition. So trees are, the surrounding trees are able to grow um, a little bit easier. And so we have to account for all of that. Um, So there are other factors that are, that are at play. And so 40% of the variance is, you know, it's pretty good. um, So if a tree falls in the forest, does it significantly affect the canopy such that it changes the insulation for the, oh, we should go with this version. <laughs> it's just, exactly. Just yeah. keeps going. <laughs> so, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's, there's, there's, there's just a lot of factors that are mm. at, at play. And, um, you know, I, I like what you said, you, you have to be comfortable with error bars. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I think that's one of the, the beautiful caveats of, of paleoclimate uh, work and, that error bars are a thing and you know we can justify them though yeah and i think you know when i if i put my slightly critical hat on just as an exercise i think you know sure i could say oh well the error bars are so big and there's so many interrelationships but um, even with my critical hat on i'm still impressed that we can do anything at all and in the, in the kind of discussion about climate change, this this point sort of gets missed that um, sometimes people think that the climate change argument comes from a paleoclimate perspective, but it, it doesn't actually. You know, the climate change argument is more about, well, we know what carbon dioxide does. Mm-hmm. If you put it in the atmosphere, we know that that means more energy gets directed down to the surface and that energy exactly. has to go somewhere. And that picture doesn't depend on paleoclimate at all. But you, th- you can then bring in what we know from paleoclimate to back up that argument, even if the evidence from paleo has the big error bars and the chains of mm-hmm. logic, it still ends up being consistent with that story about like, yes, exactly. this, this is the, you know, we know about the feedback between temperature and CO2 under kind of non-forced conditions when we're not burning a whole lot of it, right? And, you know, the temperature chain, my understanding of that and you, you know more about paleo than I do, so you can tell me if I'm wrong. My understanding of the kind of longer cycle, like the 400,000-year temperature CO2 cycle, I'm taking us on a bit of a tangent. Sorry, this is a diversion. No worries. Um, is that you've got the orbital cycles, the Milankovitch cycles, which change the tilt of the Earth and changes the tilt of the orbital plane and lots of these kind of subtle orbital parameters over time. Um, and that induces a change in the kind of earth's kind of ocean temperatures 
and that affects how soluble or insoluble CO2 is, for example. So if you warm up the ocean, some CO2 tends to get released because it's now less soluble. <laughs> and that CO2 in the atmosphere amplifies that effect a bit and warms things up a bit more. So you can learn about these kind of feedback mechanisms from using paleoclimate. You know, you can learn about, I, you know, one of the, it's kind of a trope now, one of the kind of arguments that climate dismissers like to use, which is getting less and less prevalent, I think, is they say like, well, the climate's always changing. Mm -hmm. And a nice response I've heard to that is like, well, yeah, but climate scientists are the ones who figure that out and who are the ones who are, <laughs> you know, figured out like how that happens. So, um, oh, yeah. it, it's like, yes, there are limits to what we can say, but there's still so much really valuable stuff that we've gotten from, from paleo. Mm -hmm. um, so I tried to be critical of paleo, but I couldn't do it. That was my, I was, I tried to put my hat on, but I'm like, <laughs> you know what? No, it's, it's too important. It's too good. I don't want, I don't want to be, I don't want to be critical. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, yeah. great. I'm, I guess I'm a bit biased and think that paleo is the greatest science ever, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there definitely are, yeah, error bars. There's there's a ton of them, and they are sure. they're huge. But um, I'd I'd say the field is absolutely invaluable because you know I mean how aside from aside from modeling, how else are we gonna basically kind of test out how these processes work? Um, you know, we don't we don't have enough time to do that uh, to right. run this global experiment. If we did, it probably would not be the best <laughs> idea. Um, nothing like jeopardizing millions of lives but um it's critical yeah, yeah we, so. we have to, we need this information we need to know what you know the past past climate used to look like and we need to learn about the feedback mechanisms but specifically i guess let's get let's get back to hurricanes i guess because oh, yeah. that's, that's your <laughs> your specific area okay so if we think about hurricanes you know you mentioned 600 years ago you mentioned a couple thousand years ago on that time scale are these hurricanes very different from uh, hurricanes today or are they fairly similar? You know, largely what, what we focus on is more broader patterns, how those are changing. So how mm -hmm. is hurricane activity changing? Yeah. And what are the, what are the controls of that? And so, um, you know, there, there have been, there's, there's, there's a lot of difficulty actually synthesizing just basically regional records to, to, to uh, parse out, okay, well, this is this is what is happening to hurricanes overall, and part of that is that you know not a lot of studies necessarily reconstruct magnitude; um, they just generally want to focus on the activity. Um, and so, you know, we've seen some declines in, in activity, say during. Um, I'm trying to think of the specific kinds. I just read a paper just talking about that. Um, so, when by activity oh, you mean like number of storms or hmm. intensity, some kind of integrated measure of number and intensity of storms exactly. uh, over a certain area. And and in that in that activity, I guess it just depends on the site. You you do get an intensity threshold because, you know, they'll say whoever's whoever's working up the record will say, okay, well, you know, we have this category three storm that made landfall here, produces this this deposit, say in in, in the nineteen nineties and. Uh, they'll see that throughout their instrumental record and say, okay, well, clearly this site is only sensitive to um, storms of this magnitude. Um, so like my site, my sediment site, at least in Mississippi, was only sensitive to the most extreme flooding cases. Mm -hmm. 
I guess I guess that can be tied to category. But if you know, if you look at Katrina versus Camille, uh, was, that's a whole that's a whole weird thing where Camille was actually stronger than Katrina technically at landfall, but Katrina had a much higher storm surge. I think the average storm surge for Camille, or sorry, for Katrina was the same as Camille's maximum storm surge. Hmm. Um, so there are a, a whole host of factors, but, um, you know, you do have, uh, uh, I guess, I guess I'm getting on a, on a tangent. Uh, That's okay. Intensity yeah, and activity. Okay. Yeah. So you do have these activity curves or these frequency curves that are kind of built with with um, intensity or magnitude kind of in mind, but they aren't. There's no a lot of studies aren't directly reconstructing um, a particular intensity metric. Hmm. But uh, when we're looking at activity, though, just in general, basically it goes back to that number of storms. So are we seeing an increase in, in storm storms making landfall? Are we seeing a decrease in storms making landfall? I mean, usually, you know, that's uh, the, the frequency curves are built just using like a, say, a 100-year moving window that's mm -hmm. counting up the number of storms in that um, and then moves on to the next year, um, or I guess another, the next set right there. And so that's how those frequency curves are built. And, um, you know, what's, what's, what's interesting about, or I don't know, maybe, maybe it's, Maybe I'm biased, um, mm -hmm. but what's what's interesting about a lot of the paleo hurricane papers when they're talking about frequency is that they they really are, are you know okay we had historic high hurricane activities during the Little Ice Age we'll just say that as an example which I think mm -hmm. is a that's a stretch um, I'd have to go back and review the literature but they focus more on activity at a certain point in the past rather than now and they they kind of speculate as to what's going on now and it's, it's becoming a, a lot more common in the field to kind of really rope in current climate change current and future climate change so yeah. but it it still kind of goes back to that whole the whole thing of well we don't entirely feel comfortable talking about what's happening with hurricanes and climate change um and it's not until recently that that that's really started to shift though like mm. and very recently i'd say probably over the last 10 or so years okay um yeah from my at least review of the literature so there are potential patterns of their intensity shifts in intensity and it sounds like people try to tie those to other large-scale environmental conditions modes of climate variability mm -hmm. um on those kind of similar time scales because we don't necessarily know that relationship super well. The exactly, you know, in an ice age versus not in an ice age, or you know, different points of that Milankovitch cycle, right? What is the what is the hurricane relationship between the hurricane intensity patterns and the phase of various bits of the Milankovitch cycles? Like uh, we mm -hmm. don't necessarily know those. Exactly. Well, I've been focusing on the relationship between um, the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation and and hurricanes. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a fun trip into that uh, for for my paper um, because mm. interestingly we see a pretty strong connection to the AMO. Um, we talk about what that is. Yeah, what's, what's yeah. the AM, AMO and AMV also is another term I've I've heard. Yeah, Atlantic so variability. Um, I have so with the AMO. Um, it's basically my, at least my understanding of it is that it's a sea surface temperature anomaly pattern in the North Atlantic that is the di do dominant driver of, or dominant at least signal of, mm -hmm. of multidecadal climate variability in the Atlantic. Mm. Um, and so we, you know, there, there's been a lot of 
a lot of speculation about the relationship between AMO and, and tropical cyclones, where during a positive phase or a warm phase of the AMO, we see an increase in tropical cyclone activity in the North mm -hmm. Atlantic, um, and the opposite being uh, being the case if we're in a, a negative or a cool phase of it. So it's and more so, than just it's more than just warm or cool North Atlantic. There's like a pattern. There's a spatial mm -hmm. pattern associated with it. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's pretty intimately tied to the North Atlantic Oscillation. Mm -hmm. um, but for the purposes of my my study is, or at least what I'm, I'm proposing, and you know, I, I've been reading papers on it, uh, is that it is um, the way it's connected to, or the way tropical cyclones are connected to um, the AMO is through the size of the Atlantic warm pool. Mm, okay. um, and so that basically the Atlantic warm pool will, you know, as it, as it, as it shrinks or as it grows, it basically changes the distribution of vertical wind shear. Um, you know, when, as it grows, it basically um, will relax that vertical wind shear, which makes for an ideal environment for tropical cyclones uh, to the form. Shear, the shear is how the wind changes with height, right? So exactly. if it's got a, if the shear is strong, there's a big change in the wind with height, if the mm -hmm. vertical shear is strong. But if the vertical exactly. shear is weak, then the winds are pretty uniform all the way up. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I remember from our last chat that if you've got strong vertical wind shear, that can kind of shred apart a hurricane to put it exactly blunt, to put it simply. Yeah. To yeah. Simplify it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. And so, so that's one of the ways that it, that it kind of controls that. Um, also the, um, the fluxes between air sea interactions there. And so that's, that's largely what I've been diving into with this, um, at least from a very rudimentary perspective. Mm. And so the other thing is that the, um, as that Atlantic warm pool grows, it, you know, the, the Gulf of Mexico is included in that. Um, mm. But, you know, the way I, I kind of look at it is that the loop current can kind of be thought of as, as an extension, basically, of that warm pool. And so as it expands, that loop current kind of moves um, farther and farther into the Gulf of Mexico. I suppose you could also have increased warm core eddy shedding. Mm. But as that loop current expands into the Gulf of Mexico, um, that basically makes the Gulf even more primed, if you will, for... Um, to maintain at least that intensity of a tropical cyclone, um, but also to provide a lot of moisture. So there's just basically an increase in wetness that could occur. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the mechanism that I, I've been I've been kind of writing about, I suppose, when trying to connect the AMO with uh, my my record um, of tropical cyclone precipitation, at least. Right. So. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really really good. And that's like you said, it's a multi-decadal kind of mm -hmm. time scale that you're working on. So in that case, I guess when you're talking about paleo hurricanes, you might actually have a decent amount of information depending on how far you're, you're trying to go back. Exactly. Um, yeah. So for that study, how far back are you trying to go? Um, so actually ours, uh, it's about 500 years. Um, okay. And this is, yeah, so this is actually the oldest reconstruction of its kind. You know, there's there's only one other published study uh, that reconstructs uh, the amount of tropical cyclone precipitation, at least seasonal values, and so and that's published. Well, my advisor's a co-author on that, okay. um, and and so and that was done in North Carolina. And so with this study, mm. I wanted to see, well, can you do the same thing without having to account for things like microtopography? Because what they found in North Carolina was that 
only the trees that were growing on these these little like one one meter high uh, sand ridges called Carolina Bays, um, or at least the ridges of Carolina Bays, um, which are um, I think if I'm not mistaken they form via aeolian processes, but I, I do not 100% remember. But only the trees that were growing on top of that or those ridges were sensitive to tropical cyclone precipitation, and that's because of the uh, water table depth for that. So. Hmm. Um, so I wanted to see if I could apply that just kind of a, a, a blanket approach. Alien is wind driven, right? That's yes, like yes. wind changes the sand distribution or something like that. And yeah, okay, okay. So um, hmm. and I was a little interested by you said that they're called Carolina. So there's a feature that's kind of it's not specific to the Carolinas, is it? It must be it must exist in other places. That's just where it was named. Yeah, I think I, I'm not sure the distribution of it, but okay. um, that's that's where it was. That's where it was named. It was um, named yeah. And I think for a while they thought that it was. I want to say it was like cosmogenic, in, or if you will. Um, so like asteroids or or something came came in. Oh, really? and, yeah, and created like you know small ones. Um, hmm. I want to say that was that was the case, um, though I could uh -huh. be I could be entirely wrong. I know that. Now they they're aeolian though. That was at least what my advisor said. Yeah. Um, I've wanted to kind of take a, a trench and kind of look at them in the uh, take a cross section basically of the mm. actual ridges themselves. Um, but you know, money is a is an issue. So mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah. I guess you have to come up with a pretty specific science plan for you know why you want to go digging holes and stuff like that. Exactly. Hmm. That sounds like, like a really been my problem. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to dig a hole here, but you need somebody to fight, to pay you for it, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. So the an AMO reconstruction, well, the the storm surge you can use to do hurricane type reconstruction, mm -hmm. and so that's a study that's in progress, right? You mm -hmm. said that that's something that's actively going on now. Yeah. I'm I'm writing up the paper. Um, I have a, a little, just a little bit left to go. Um, oh, fun! Yeah, so um, I need to tweak the intro a little bit, um, finish up the AMO stuff, and then I suppose write a conclusions slash broader impacts um, where I'm going to talk about you know um, tropical cyclone induced uh, flooding um, and try and you know, identify flood events in the historic record, you know, such as like with the 1888 Louisiana hurricane, there was extensive, extensive flooding that uh, mm -hmm. resulted from that storm. So kind of trying to talk about that, that, hey, you know, in addition to this being just really cool, like that we could reconstruct this, uh, this aspect of tropical cyclones, um, we can use this information to kind of link flooding, not on necessarily on like major rivers or anything, but on smaller, smaller, smaller watersheds um, in the historic record and uh, get a better sense of how they respond to tropical cyclones as well. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, a lot of different things that I guess I'm covering in this paper and I might be jinxing myself by saying this, but we're going to submit or hopefully submit to uh, nature geoscience. But uh, I figured, you know, why not aim high and then go from there? It's worth a try. Yeah. It's, so. I mean, you usually get a rejection back pretty quickly if you're going mm -hmm. to get a rejection. So 
it's worth a try. And I think they try to keep the formatting pretty simple to where it's not, hopefully not a big deal to, you know, for that initial submission. Exactly. I was wondering, have you ever seen the work by uh, Isla Simpson? She's at NCAR and she does some multi-decadal uh, Atlantic variability work and uh, has has some really nice papers uh, along those no. lines. I have not actually, but I'm going to write that name down really quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. You said Hyla Simpson? Isla. I-S-L-A. Yeah. So she was, I think she was a lead author on this study. There was a study she did linking that kind of multi-decadal variability in the Atlantic to rainfall patterns in the UK and kind of showed like how it changed the uh, the jet stream and so kind of where you would expect to find precipitation and that kind of makes me think well that's another source of precipitation right it's another you know the the storm surges yeah those are mostly going to be from larger systems mm-hmm. uh, at least if you go far enough inland i'm guessing but you do have this other precipitation signal just from shifts in the jet stream and other you know subtropical kind of normal thunderstorms and things it, that must be kind of noisy in your your data, right? That must be in there as well. How do you how do you handle that? Um, so it is it it definitely is in there. Um, in there are instances where you know we don't like in the instrumental record that we have, we don't have a tropical cyclone, but we still see some some reconstructed amount of precipitation, hmm. um, which you know could arise from you know say a mid latitude cyclone that happens to move through though i suppose that they're somewhat rare during the the from june to or sorry from july to september um Mm -hmm. which is the the window that we're really focusing on but you know when we're when we're doing our reconstruction we actually use a uh, we we calibrate it using an instrumental tropical cycling precipitation record right right um and so it's it is it's built off of that um and you know we acknowledge that hey you know, while while all while not we can't attribute this all this growth to um, just tropical cyclones alone. You know, it is realistically just responding to any heavy precipitation mm-hmm. amount. So mm-hmm. I think I think we don't necessarily like account for that. Um, it I guess completely, but we we address it, and I think I think just being aware of it is um, at least in this stage of the uh, the field. I think that that's sufficient because we're just trying to get that basic idea of what what what's happening with with our tropical cyclones. Yeah, you mentioned um, that forty percent variability. That mm-hmm. you know some of that the other sixty percent some of that could just come from well the jet stream is moving around and the average location of storms is moving around and that changes the precipitation distribution. And uh, exactly. yeah, yeah, good. So we we normally kind of shift gears a bit. I don't have a super smooth transition into it, but we kind of talk about pathways into science and how you ended up where you are. And I don't think we talked very much about that during your, your other episode, but so is there another science bit you want to make sure we talk about, or are you happy for us to move on into the kind of pathway Um, stuff? uh, Well, I I will say that um, what's really cool is that uh, for the instrumental record, what I, I did, I, I developed the, this gridded data set of um, tropical cyclone precipitation, and it's like mm. it has 
quarter degree resolution. Um, mm. And I used the, uh, what is it? Um, US Unified CPC Daily. I can't remember what all the acronyms are for it, but there's a there's a daily gridded uh, precipitation product that is hosted by, I think it's up on the physical sciences laboratory um, with NOAA. And so I used that actually to, to, to basically extract tropical cyclone precipitation. And so like, I, I suppose it's technically at a daily level, it's not good for daily level, but um, you know, the, this, this data set I have has been really useful for reconstructing tropical cyclone precipitation. And it's been very exciting to actually apply that because I'm certainly not comfortable working in the modern um, so this was a this was a great I'd say a, a great experience I suppose to try and get my my feet wet um, with some modern stuff as well and yeah. so that's actually in Journal of Climate it was published earlier this year. Nice, um, thank you. So um, that that's like the the other thing is that you know just kind of wanted to briefly mention that um, because it's a it's a cool data set that is. Uh, publicly available on my GitHub. The, it is a net CDF file that is poorly, poorly designed. I'm trying to work out how to actually put in the, the different uh, features, I suppose, uh, mm. that when you download a fancy net CDF file from Noah, for example. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, they have all the attributes uh, set, set mm -hmm. and they have the grid kind of is contained in the file. So you don't have to download a separate grid file. All that information is in the it's just in mm -hmm. that file itself, the meta metadata yeah. also, data about exactly. the data is contained. So, and so I'm trying to work out how to how to get all that taken care of uh, because I am also self-taught my coding. So mm. yeah, it's a uh, so it's yeah. it's a bit of a challenge, but like a lot uh, of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I I've been meaning to ask people, hey, so how did you how did you make this? Um, the attributes in NetCDF files, uh, because for some reason the MATLAB uh, instructions are not clicking with me. So, yeah, I uh, I had to Google a bunch to find an explanation that kind of finally worked for me. Um, if if you remind me afterwards, I'll send you this the example that I found that clicked for me, and it, you know it may or may not work for you, but I can send it your way. Oh yeah, um, I appreciate yeah. that. Um, Good. So if you're happy, then we can kind of do the pathway stuff. Yep. That works for me. Yeah. So how was the, uh, how's the kind of working from home quarantine type lockdown ish kind of situation been since we spoke last? Um, you know, so I, so I actually had to go home, um, back to Arkansas to vote. Right. Um, and so, because I never received my absentee ballot. We talked about uh, that. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, and so um, uh, so I basically when I got back, I went and you know waited a, a couple of days, um, and then went and got a COVID test, came out negative. But uh, I've honestly I have not uh, left the house for work. Um, I think since uh, maybe a week after we we chatted in October. Yeah, um, just been. Because I, I didn't want to risk getting my family sick as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the working from home has been a bit of a challenge, uh, mm -hmm. um, especially uh, 
just with writing, um, you know, it's sometimes I can do it. Uh, sometimes I, I need a, a, just a, a different environment entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it, it actually helps to not write at the chess table turned desk um, in, in our apartment and instead <laughs> just sit, sit on the bed and write. Uh, so something just as little as that can, can sometimes change it, uh, mm-hmm. change my, the ability to work from home. Um, so I, but I've, I've really had to kind of, uh, learn to just kind of work in waves. Mm, um, yeah. and just like, if I feel productive, uh, stop whatever I'm doing, but if it's assuming it's, it's not something productive as well. So if I'm like doing the dishes, just stop, mm. focus on the dishes later, um, yeah, yeah. and write instead. So when it strikes you, yeah. When that, mm-hmm. when that mood strikes you and it just feels like the right thing to do. Then, yep. uh, yeah, I like that. Like, yeah, so once and you know, obviously the uh, with the grad student guilt, I always feel like I should be writing. But um, you know, I'd I'd rather productively procrastinate um, and say do the dishes, like I said, and instead of just sitting in front of my computer hoping that I can I can spit out some words um, for hours on end. No, I think it's better. It's better to, like you said, do something else maybe kind of forget about it your subconscious mm-hmm. will still be working on it in the background to some extent and then exactly. when, it, when it comes up with a solution or a set of ideas it will deliver them to you you know that's mm-hmm. kind of magically working in the background every exactly. now and then it pops its little head up above the the hill and says here you go i got something for you and then yeah that's a great time to go run and jot it down and at least get the essence of it down right i mean i was i was honestly brushing my teeth when i thought about the connection with the amo and, and tcp hmm. so nice i was like oh this makes sense right now with the atlantic warm pool cool. so that's a great example that sometimes those moments of inspiration they strike when you're doing something totally different exactly you're not doing science at all exactly yeah so there's an argument there for just going to the beach all day and just right like, <laughs> just <laughs> relaxing and waiting for the inspiration to show up I'm not opposed to that. So yeah. it's worth a shot. I mean, you might as well try it. Yep. Uh, maybe not now because it's November, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I would. I would die. So cold. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you you said you don't handle the cold very well. That it's not your body doesn't is not physically set up for for cold temperatures. Right. That said, I love I love the cold. Like it's it's a really mm. weird. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. So well. I have a loose analogy there that I've been thinking about this month because I love the aesthetics of November of this time of year, like this part of autumn, you know, and this, the day's getting shorter, but that means that you have these lovely long sunsets and lovely long sunrises and beautiful colors and things. And um, so aesthetically, I love it, but mm-hmm. uh, emotionally, I can absolutely tell <laughs> that I'm not getting enough photons that... I mean, I, I start to feel a bit down and I start to feel a bit low energy for sure. And this, this yep. has been, a, it's getting a little better now, but I think that's because, you know, we actually took the day off, did the Thanksgiving thing, enjoyed each other's company. Oh, nice. And, like, um, and uh, that was, that was great. But overall this month has been like, it's been rough. It's been rough emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that um, and with, trying to get AGU stuff like sorted out, which I was so, so thankful that they extended the deadline. And then when I submitted my poster, I got a notification saying that like 
oh, you can keep working on your poster after you've submitted it. I'm like, this would have been great to know, uh, you know, beforehand. Um, so I totally, <laughs> I totally get where you're coming from about this month just being just a, a whole other beast, if you will. Um, I was, I was curious how, um, if you, if you guys celebrated Thanksgiving over over there and everything, and it's not a UK holiday, no, it's not. Um, so yesterday we just did it. We just kind of took the day off, and hmm. um, you know, we told the school. And uh, they were all, they were okay with our kids staying home for this reason. That was fine. Uh, so you know, it's it's just this one time, one day out of the year. Yeah. Uh, and it's it, it is like it's the only it's really the only U.S. holiday that I miss a lot is like yeah. Thanksgiving because it has this. Um, it's literally just about comfort food, uh, being with loved ones. Hopefully, you can uh, when when it's possible. <laughs> and kind of having football on in the background if you want you know that's that's um, that's a nice ambiance for it anyway that kind of provides right. us some of the mood and just being vaguely contemplative and thinking about being thankful for things every now and then right uh, it's just like a really nice wholesome holiday <laughs> i agree i agree i mean it there there are some i suppose some issues associated with it uh at least what what you know growing up what we were taught in school right and I, I've, I've recently kind of realized that Thanksgiving may or may not be like the geopolitical version of academic dishonesty. <laughs> so, well, I think the legend around it is is yeah the, is possibly the problem, right? Like the yeah the actual activity of it is nice and wholesome, but yeah, the story exactly. around it possibly glosses over. It does. It does gloss over a, a lot of <laughs> issues. Absolutely. Um, but you know, I, I agree though that it is it is probably uh, arguably the most wholesome holiday we have. I, I'm also a fan of Halloween. I think it's oh, a yeah. pretty wholesome holiday too. Um, it is depending on how you look at it. <laughs> but you know, it was it was. I, I would have loved to have seen my family, um, and I, mm. I called them. Um, but I would have loved to have seen my family on Thanksgiving. But on the flip side, it was very nice to just have a small um, get together with my partner. Um, and, and a few of our friends whose plans were canceled very last minute and just kind of hang out something that we've obviously not been able to really do extensively, um, since March. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's wise to be cautious. I think it makes sense yeah. to be cautious for sure. Exactly. Um, and it looks like, I mean, we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel now, finally, aren't we? That it looks like we're on the road to being vaccinated and having vaccine plus maybe like a track and trace measure, you know, like some combined system like that, which will hopefully really help us. So with any luck, this should be the only Thanksgiving that's affected by this particular pandemic. Um, Well, and you know, I, this, this may be selfish, but I I really want it to end because I I would like to walk at my graduation. (laughs) Like I don't really want to have a virtual graduation Mm-hmm. um because i've been in school for way too long so yeah, yeah you like be... that physical ceremony yep yeah, so it might, might feel a bit weird if it's just an online thing another thing that happens mm-hmm. at your laptop then <laughs> yep. so yeah. mm-hmm. my partner she said that uh we will if if we have to we will go into the backyard and <laughs> my advisor will uh will hood me so <laughs> using like a uh 
a fishing rod and reel. Right. right? So <laughs> exactly. Kind of stand on some scaffolding and like lower the hood onto you from a exactly from a safe distance from at least six feet away. Just like yep. Or a pulley system, like a rope and pulley system. So you're like lowering yeah. the pulley so <laughs> the, the hood slowly comes down around you, settles on your shoulders. That might actually that sounds like a lot more fun than uh going to a, a ceremony itself. So <laughs> But, or a um, cannon. How about a cannon that launches it onto you? <laughs> then like <laughs> a, uh, the a rogue cannon instead of a the the t-shirt cannon. That's so right. yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna email him and let him know. Hey, mm-hmm. you need to invest in a cannon if you get this grant. That's so. right. It's in the impact section. Exactly. <laughs> Quite literally, impact Quite section. Literally. <laughs> impact. So, boy, that was that was cheesy. I liked it. <laughs> Oh, I'm all about cheesy jokes and portmanteaus and um, and all that stuff. So um, yeah. I feel like if I could, I'd get a PhD in, in portmanteaus. So there must be at least one person who's done that in history. There must be surely, <laughs> surely. I mean, somebody. like at this point, <laughs> historically, there's been so many PhDs. Surely somebody did that, right? Uh, so. Yeah. So. The, uh, where I know you grew up in Arkansas, right? So that's and your family's still there. We're um, Quaint speaking state. Of, speaking of dad jokes. Were dad jokes around in your house growing up? Was that part of? Um, was there? You know, uh, I'd, I'd say jokes. it was. It was more uh, dark humor. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember so, talking about this. Yeah, the dark humor style. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we, uh, my family is, is definitely a family we dish and we take um, mm. with our humor. I, I would, I'd love to keep this podcast family friendly, so I will refrain from some of that. Well, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of some family friendly ones. Oh, man. Um, and it's, it's not like they're obscene. They're just like, oh, that's, that's, that's weird. Like a little messed up, but not really, you know, like on yeah, that border. Yeah. Like you find a line, right? You find a line of like, what's a little bit messed up to say, but not actually messed up. <laughs> actually, here's, here's a, here's a perfect example. When I was, when I was a kid, uh, my dad would tell me the story of the uh, red-eyed trash weasel uh, and mm. just something that he made up. But, you know, if you were bad, uh, the red-eyed trash weasel would sneak into your room and nibble on your toes. And so uh, me being the concerned citizen that I was, I informed my preschool uh, classmates right before nap time about the red-eyed trash, trash weasel and that they could not sleep, understandably so, at nap oh. time. And the teacher had to call my parents down um, to preschool. And when she told them what I did, uh, my dad was just laughing and could not stop and had to actually leave the conference. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was, uh, it was something I guess I was introduced to at a very early age um, that yeah. just kind of persisted into my family so you know i bet some of your classmates remember that i bet it's like somewhere in the back of their mind like <laughs> right maybe they've told their kids by they're, now so. they're drifting off to sleep drifting off they're just about asleep and they go trash weasel and they start yeah. starting so, themselves away I, I guess my dad has had a uh, possibly a lasting impact on none more than just his kids so <laughs> multi-generational yeah, right impact. yeah so um, so yeah, it was, um, so dad jokes, I suppose were, uh, I had a different meeting yeah. <laughs> in my family and I honestly wouldn't have it any other way. So, um, 
What are your what yeah. are your, what were your folks up to while you were growing up? Um, so they both worked at uh, Arkansas Children's Hospital, and they still they still work there. Um, oh, cool. They've been there for as long as I can remember. I think um, maybe right before I was born, they were at a different hospital, but a few years after, they they switched there. Hmm. Um, and so my dad's actually an occupational therapist, and is like, well, I, I guess I'm biased, but I say he's the top of his field. Mm-hmm. Um, my, mo- my mother, she is a, she's a nurse and a director of the Spina Bifida Clinic there. And uh, I think also the sexual disorders and development clinic. So, you know, a lot of uh, patients that come in with, um, that are say in, intersex, that, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of other health problems that are associated with, with, with this that she mm-hmm kind of focuses on, but uh, she predominantly focuses on spina bifida. Um, and so that's what they uh, have done for, gosh, my pretty much my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's, it's yeah. honestly inspiring. You know, they briefly, I entertained going into medicine. That was definitely not the right career tra- choice for me for many reasons, including probably my bedside manner, but uh <laughs> But yeah, um, uh, I don't know. Honestly, you, seem, you seem friendly. I could see you delivering bad news. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Well, that's the thing is, I'm I'm a little too good at delivering bad news. So um, tact, I suppose, is not my strength. I suppose, but um, well, maybe that goes with know, the dark, dark humor. You know, right? Like, exactly. You're just a little um, bit more comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, uh, and my partner Caitlin has to like, if we're going into a sensitive situation, she's like. Okay, I know you like to use humor and everything to kind of help out with tension, but it's probably not the best time. Let's read the room, and I'm like, yeah. okay, that's fair, that's fair. I'll just, I'll just do my I own thing. Just, and I'm just imagining you, like, you know, at the bedside. You know, you look at the charts and you say, well, at least you're going to have one leg when we're done, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, that's, that's how I'm making it up an example, but you know, like... <laughs> no, I mean, but I would say that, like, um, so my, but my parents have have, you know, they they've worked in medicine, they've worked with kids and you know I've shadowed them um you know several times throughout my life and honestly it's just it's inspiring and uh, I feel like my sister would probably say the same uh, about my parents as well and um you know I I, I'm super appreciative of them and I I, I'm saying this not because I know that they'll listen to this but, but um because it's it's true that they they kind of have always tried to just instill this philosophy of you know, try and leave the world um, a better place than what it was when you came into it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So. Or at least not worse. If you can't, yeah. if you can't <laughs> do that, then try to like be at least neutral. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So but that's good. So it was, um, so you, you said you have a sister, so it's you and mm-hmm. yeah. You, any any yeah, others? My, my little sister. Uh, it's just the two of us. Yeah. Um, she's the, She's a she's my best friend, or at least one of my best friends, hmm. and I, uh, uh, yeah, I love her to death. Um, she is she is a character. Oh my gosh, she is she is quite the actor, um, like a true thespian. It is it's amazing. She just, oh, cool. just has this innate ability to act. Um, she's gotten callbacks for uh, actually she was um, she got a callback for True Grit that hmm. movie. Uh, came out uh, what a few years ago. I say a few years ago. I think it was like eight years ago now, something like that. Um, but she got a callback for that. And um, where's she living? Yeah. Out in out in LA? Or? 
And uh, so she's she's actually uh, living in Arkansas right now, okay. um, trying to. Uh, I th- she switched to um, art uh, lately, yeah, and, yeah. and she's a she's just she's just so talented. Like yeah. she she just has this innate artistic ability, and it, it's it's amazing. She can write better than I I ever could. So um, <laughs> something that I have to like practice, and she's just one of the most creative writers I've ever known um it's it's fascinating um just mm. to see how her mind works and how she gets that out onto paper yeah. and everything yeah sorry so. to assume sorry to assume la i i think it's it's nah, a cold, no worries i mean the way i've heard it put is like well it's a it's a coal mining town so if you're a coal miner that's mm. where you would go you know if that's your yep. that's the version of coal mining so of course you yep. can pursue acting and whatnot you know anywhere that there's a decent number of people and <laughs> who have exactly. some support for, for theater you don't have to be in la you can be in other places but i get the impression it makes some things easier in terms of yeah if you're the person if you're a person who's trying to get callbacks on stuff then mm-hmm. yeah she's she's she really transitioned recently to drawing and everything oh, cool. and which you know honestly to be able to do that just on a whim is something that i absolutely admire because mm-hmm. uh you know i mean i've I've obviously, I've obviously narrowed myself down into this super niche field. So I feel like it, it would be a little, little difficult to switch, but yeah. yeah. So, sorry, I don't mean to go on and on about my family, no, no. Um, no, that's, but, but I, I asked about them. That's fine. That's, that's totally fine. Cause it, so, it gives me a little bit of a picture of, you know, the people you grew up around and what that environment might've been like. And, uh, and informs a little bit i think you know you mentioned you having a college degree you have a spanish degree and mm-hmm. you know it sounds like uh so i imagine your parents have been really supportive of it sounds like there would be supportive people that you know they've encouraged your kind of exploration of different areas so tell me tell me about that so you what was your like undergrad experience like where where would you where did you go and which degree did you kind of start with on your pathway here um, so I went to the University of Central Arkansas, um, small, small college, actually close, uh, about 30 minutes away from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, I actually went to high school uh, farther away than I did college. So, you know, that was, um, that took some getting used to, I suppose. But uh, so I, I started off as uh, bio pre-med as every, everybody does. Right. And so, nope. uh, I ran the other, I, I was nowhere near that stuff. I already knew I'm squeamish. Uh, don't want, don't want to see blood. No, thanks. I'm so, <laughs> I consider you so lucky. Um, but, cause like the thing was like, I was always interested in earth science. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I mean, obsessed, like start off with paleontology, then meteorology. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, when I actually went to my high school, which was a, a two year boarding school for math and science and Whoa. they, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird little school, uh, Arkansas school for math, science and the arts. And, uh, hmm. it was, a uh, it was like Hogwarts, I suppose, but like just Ravenclaws and Slytherins. So, <laughs> but yeah, so we, um, so I had a, uh, teacher there, Dr. Ruley, um, who actually recently uh, passed away, um, and but he was very impactful, um, and it was actually through him that, you know, I, I realized, oh, I'm actually kind of interested in epidemiology too, 
Um, and so he actually helped me come up with this field, atmospheric epidemiology, and I was going to try and basically understand the atmosphere's role in how diseases spread. Ooh. And yeah, so that was what I was going to focus on. Um, my my primary care physician uh, shot that down, saying that this this doesn't happen. Which you know, at the time, I was I was very very naive and and kind of took that to heart. And you know, apparently, what do you mean that, uh, it, do you mean that doesn't happen? Like he like yeah, he, stuff he is transmitted the, through the air, and uh, yeah, yeah, different condition environmental conditions can affect how things are transmitted. Sure. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, now we see, especially with climate change, that that is a huge factor in the spread of, of diseases um, and possibly even like the connection to pandemics and the sort. Mm -hmm. So um, I suppose I may have missed out on a field, but I do not regret my decision. Hmm. Um, That's good. Yeah. Because uh, when I, when I took bio one um, and, you know, it's, it's all, you know, micro and molecular biology, and it was it was just a chore. I mean, it was mm. so painful. And honestly, uh, hats off to my partner, uh, Caitlin, who's a virologist, um, that she could do all this stuff because that is that is rough for me. Um, mm. So I think it was I, rough I, about it in particular was it um, for me? It's like there's just, a lot of memorization. I was just bored, honestly. Mm. And when it when I'm bored, everything it like the the subject subject gets rough. Mm -hmm. um it was just honestly not interesting mm. um and i i yeah i mean and it's possible that i didn't give it the old college try but you know uh i figured i'm here why not why not uh do something that i actually enjoy so um yeah so i found um environmental science they, they offered that and you know i took um ap environmental science in in high school and was like this is a lot of fun this is the closest thing we have to earth science so at least at, at uca um so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do this and i'll i'll declare we had three different tracks one was a policy track another was chemistry and then the other was ecology so i just say i have a glorified ecology degree um and so um so i did that and uh, don't regret it. I did ecology research. A lot of my research, though, was actually my my senior thesis in in college was actually atmospheric chemistry, uh, specifically lightning chemistry, um, oh, which was like really weird. But I actually got the idea from an ecology lecture um, to try and figure out the um, connection between ground level nitrogen oxides and lightning. Um, oh, I like that. And so. Yeah, so it was it was uh it was fun. Um turns out the rain just washes it out. <laughs> so oh, really? yeah, not a lot of so, not a lot that we can do with that. So lightning so. can change the nitrogen, like the uh the this the what do they call it? The speciation, like the Yeah, the, so um, it's 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 a it's a it's an important process for um going between the different NOx species, um, mm -hmm. nitrogen oxide and nitrogen dioxide. Yeah. Um, and also part, I guess part of the ozone cycle too. I mean, it's it's been it's been a pretty minute since I've even thought <laughs> right. about right. that. Right. Um so and you know, but I mean I I I know from for a fact that it's involved with ozone because I've gotten a little uncomfortably close to lightning. So oh, really? um yeah yeah and I, like i could smell the ozone um mm. uh, I, i'm a bit of a thrill seeker but that was a little too close for comfort so, so you were on a, on a mountain i take it and 
No, I was actually yeah. in a, just a, a gazebo taking shelter from from some rain because I uh, my car was huh. too far away, and oh, right. uh, lightning got a little too close for comfort. So wow, okay, yeah. So bad or um, good, bad or good luck, depending on how you look at it. Uh, like, yeah, I'm mean, gonna say it's all good luck because <clears throat> I got close to lightning um, without getting hurt. So, so you yeah. get to smell smell the ozone, huh? from yep. the lightning strike had you smelled ozone before i'm not sure if i smelled ozone i don't know if i know <laughs> so like. i have actually i had smelled ozone before because um in that environmental science class in high school we were doing ozone tests and we had a an ozone generator as our control and uh i it wasn't working and i was trying to mess with it and my, dr ruley was on the other side trying to mess with it and he suddenly got it to work and it just blasted my face with ozone. So that was, uh, yeah. So I, I've definitely smelled ozone before. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was, I was all right. Like uh, I just had like a, a little cough for a, for uh, like a, like the rest of the day, but yeah. Cause it's uh, not great for human respiration, <laughs> right? Definitely it's, not. Uh, it's, we want it up in the stratosphere because it, yep block some of the incoming ultraviolet radiation from mm -hmm. the sun but we don't want it down here because it's not good for uh, respiration definitely not and mm. definitely not like full force right in the face so no, no. but yeah, yeah so uh you know i had smelled ozone before so but so that was that was how i knew well that and you know the sudden bright light and the, the thunder um but, uh, but, I love, um, yeah i love how those get the second mention it's like i smelled right? ozone <laughs> Oh, yes. And it was the loudest and brightest thing I've ever seen also. <laughs> so I was a little dazed there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I definitely have gotten, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have not been struck. But um, mm. yeah, so that's what I did in undergrad. Um, and I also studied Spanish as well, have a, a degree in that, um, because it's always been something that was, um, that I've, I've loved. Because uh, growing up, you know, we would have family friends that live in the house. And I have two um, Peruvian ants, and mm -hmm. I, I, I know that the listeners will not see that uh, with the air quotes. Um, they, I just grew up always calling them my aunt. Um, yeah, yeah. But they, uh, yeah, I mean, they're just family friends. So Spanish has been something that I've been interested in. And, um, you know, in high school, I, I took all the way up to Spanish five. And then um, my uh, teacher in high school, uh, Senior Mac, he, uh, which that was terrible way to show off my Spanish accent. No, um, he, uh, he like really got me into Spanish literature. Um, and so I declared a Spanish major as well. And yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Honestly, there were some, definitely some challenges, uh, for sure. But, uh, like taking medieval Spanish literature. Oh my gosh. But, yeah. Yeah. I was that the only uh, undergrad in there and the youngest book that we read was published in the mid to late 1500s so Ooh. oh man um I mean, so it's, it's like hard enough to read yeah exactly it's hard enough to read medieval english <laughs> like much <Right>. less medieval <laughs> second language <laughs> yep so um so it was it was really fascinating um stuff i i enjoy i also find uh mesoamerican history and culture absolutely fascinating um like i'm obsessed with the incas i i obsessed with the mayas and aztecs um i guess those are the big three um i do find the old mechs interesting too mm -hmm. um but uh i've been really really wanting to kind of dive into 
the relationship between uh, changes in the Mayan civilization and changes in tropical cyclones. That would be um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. There, and there have been, there have been some studies on it um, that have kind of linked um, some of the, like the Maya classical uh, terminal period. Uh, I think I might've mixed up some of the words there, but uh, link that to uh, tropical cyclone changes and changes in just really the hydroclimate. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that like, in, in my mind, I'm like, oh, sweet. I can finally combine, you know, my science with, you know, my Spanish. Um, and then that's a climate change story, basically showing how, exactly. you know, a climate shift can have a huge impact on a civilization, exactly. on a society. And honestly, so when I, when I taught paleoclimate um, last spring, um, when we got into uh, the common era, that was one of the things I, I actually talked about. I had my students read a paper um, that talked about, um, you know, the changes in, in the Mayan civilization and uh, in the hydroclimate. And they absolutely loved it. And I was so excited when they loved it, when they said that they loved it, because mm-hmm. I was just like, see, you guys see how cool this is. And, you know, this is, this has uh, far reaching impacts than just the esoteric stuff that you would expect from, uh, you know, a lot of science as a whole. Like, mm-hmm. there's so many cool stories that you can un- uh, unravel, so many historical stories that you can unravel. Um, and get a sense of like why why were the Mayans particularly susceptible to um, the Spanish when they came over? Mm-hmm. You know, um, was it was it strictly just technology, or was it that the environment set them up and and basically it was like a predator taking out a a wounded animal to have a mm. really really terrible analogy, but you know, an already nice. wounded animal though. Um, right. Right. So yeah, yeah, it was a it was a threat multiplier for them potentially in the same way exactly. that climate change is still a threat multiplier for us now. Um, exactly, you know, because it can affect so many different levels of your society and logistics, how you you know get stuff from one place to another. <laughs> so what um, you went to grad school after that, I guess at some point because you're in grad. I say that because you're in grad school, so I'm guessing. Yeah. You get, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what was the shift yeah. like there, the transition there? Um, so for, uh, you know, the problem with being an earth scientist that is studying ecology and atmospheric chemistry and then also Spanish. And actually, I do have a, a glorified philosophy minor um, as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem with that is that you're going to cast a wide net. And so um, that's exactly what I did, which was a huge huge mistake um when i was applying for grad school the first round because oh yeah i you know i I applied to ecology programs i applied to atmospheric science programs geology geography all sorts and i did not have a lot of success um with that i actually had then i accepted an offer from the university of arkansas which you know i love that go go razorbacks but uh to study um originally it was geology but then uh geography and i was actually going to work with dave staley um on tree rings Mm. Uh, i was like this sounds fine like i can do this um and then i got an offer or i got uh, a a request to apply to University of Southern Mississippi, uh, their Department of Marine Science. And I was like, okay, oceanography sounds fun. <laughs> so I, I pretty much picked my master's on a whim, um, and which is something I, I really don't recommend. Um, but 
it, it happened to work out for me. Um, I got there, uh, down there, um, from a landlocked state, no experience with oceanography. Mm -hmm. Um, and admittedly the first semester was rough. It was very rough with, um, physical oceanography and marine chemistry right off the bat. Mm. And, uh, and so that was, it was, it was a challenge. Um, and I was also the only, only one teaching while I was there. That was how I was funded. I uh, was teaching the lab sections of, of the course uh, of, of intro to marine science. And mm-hmm. it's, it's weird because the department of marine science at Southern Miss is not actually at the main campus. It's at the Stennis space center. Um, and so to teach, I'd have to actually drive up to the main campus um, and teach two lab sections. The, la- the last one technically went to like 9 p.m. Oh, yeah. And then and then drive down back down to Stennis, which is like an hour away, drop off the department vehicle and then drive to my apartment, which is about 30 minutes away because they test. Uh, it's a NASA facility. Hmm. They test rocket engines there. So there's an acoustic buffer. Oh, um wow. Yeah, and so like the closest town is maybe twenty minutes away or so. Hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I picked picked oceanography on a whim. Had a very rough first semester. Admittedly, uh, I, I kind of I meant to say this. I think I think during the um, the ADHD podcast, but um, you know, I had, there was a postdoc there that uh, she was um, tutoring grad students in physical oceanography, and she admittedly said uh, to me when I was having some trouble. I don't know what you're doing in this program. Um, you should, yeah, you should, uh, you should go study geography or, or law. And, um, I was just like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm gonna do the, uh, try and struggle through physical oceanography on my own. Mm. Um, and so that was a challenge, of course. Um, and actually when I actually learned a lot more physical oceanography, when I took, um, marine ecosystem modeling and, I, you know, the teacher there was probably one of my favorite uh, professors. So, uh, which was which was great. Um, anyway, sorry, I, I didn't mean to get mm. sidetracked. Um, no, it's okay. I mean, it just makes me think about how important it is to be supportive, mm-hmm. and I think you do have to be really careful with thoughts like, you know, I don't know what you're doing in this program because it's, you're assuming a lot when you make a statement like that, right? You're assuming that. You're assuming things like, oh, well, if this was the right place for you, it would be easier, which is not necessarily the case. Sometimes things are just hard. And as we discussed on the, you know, ADHD episode, there could be other factors at play as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you never know what's going on in somebody's life uh, unless they tell you, you don't know anything about that person's neurobiology, which has a large lot to do with how they operate and like a graduate program, for example. Exactly. Yeah, so you got to be really careful. I, th- I think overall we're getting more sensitive about that kind of thing, about not mm-hmm. not saying that sort of thing. Like, is it is it ever really your place to tell somebody else, like, oh, I think you belong in a different program? Exactly. Uh, probably yeah. not. Probably it's not. It's yeah. probably not your place. You can say, well, if you want to be here, I'll support you and be supportive because I'm your TA or I'm, you know, uh, and really you have to leave it up to that person to decide if they, you know, want to continue in that program or not. Let, let it yes. be their call. I agree wholeheartedly. And that's, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a philosophy, you know, after, especially after experiencing that, that's a philosophy I just try to take to teaching altogether um, with, with my students. Cause 
I don't know what they're going through. And, and that's just something that, you know, since, since I was teaching at, at Southern Miss, I just like, I gave everybody the benefit of the doubt with, yeah. with stuff. And <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I have office hours. It'd be great if you came to office hours, but if you're not comfortable with that, email me and, or we can, here's my number mm -hmm. and we can, we can chat on the phone because I'm only up there once a week. So, and you know, you might have something that's going on on say like a Tuesday. And so, um, yeah, so it, it, it hit me hard. Um, and for a while I had, I, I could, I felt like I, I was just not in, in my place and it got a little better the second semester. Um, when I was taking biological and geological oceanography, um, there were still challenges. Um, but I remember distinctively when I went out, we went out into the field one day for lab for geological oceanography and we took a sediment core and cored back to the Pleistocene. And I was just like, this is the coolest thing ever. And immediately submitted paperwork to switch from biological to geological oceanography as my concentration. Um, and so, and then I was like, well, now I got to figure out like, how can I do a geological oceanography thesis and still have like hurricanes? And so um, that's actually when I stumbled across paleotempestology. Um, and it just so happens that there was a, uh, a professor in the department, Davin Wallace, who does exactly that. And uh, I'm sorry, I, this I, is still, is this still Mississippi? Yes, sorry, sorry. Yes, yeah, yeah. Still Mississippi. Okay. Yeah. A lot happened there. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was it was a it was a rough intro to grad school for sure. Um, and I'm I'm I you know a lot of, I know a lot of people go straight from undergrad to a PhD, and I have to say that I am so glad that I went for my master's because I I'm I'm afraid that I would have like select, gotten into the wrong field uh, if I went straight to my PhD and and just had burnout. Um, and so I, I you know I I came across paleotypistology, um, realized that, you know, Dobbin Wallace researches that, went and chatted with him and, you know, we came up with an idea and everything. And um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm indebted to him uh, for uh, basically getting me on this field that like I am obsessed with. I mean, you can see from my Twitter handle, prehistoric is like, <laughs> I can't get enough of it. And, you know, I, I knew from that point on, like, this is what I want to do. Admittedly, though, like, I, I realized that a little too late when I was applying for grad schools for PhD programs, uh, because I, I, again, cast, it uh, wasn't as wide of a net, but I did kind of split it up a little bit because I knew I wanted to focus on climate change and hurricanes. And then after I submitted my, like, last application, I was like, oh, it's paleotempestology that I want to focus on. And so realistically, only two of the schools that I actually applied for uh, could have given me that option. And mm -hmm. Indiana University was one of them. So, yeah. um, which is so, where, you're, where you're studying now. Yeah, exactly. And so I, uh, I was actually introduced to my advisor, Justin Maxwell, through one of my committee members, Grant Harley, um, from Southern Miss. Mm -hmm. um, and so we started working on a drought project. I did the, the coding for that. And that was like my first... Like, okay, well, this is this is the big, big, big boy world now. I guess I have to code because um, I just learned by jumping into classes like marine ecosystem modeling, mm -hmm. and um, and so I did that. Um, applied, got in, um, but I didn't want to give up my geology stuff as well, and so I um, I you know started 
I took classes in Earth and Atmospheric Science here at IU as well, and then um, realized that I could actually do a dual PhD. Um, and so I filled out the paperwork, applied, and started a dual PhD in geography and Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. And so I'm also working um, with Brian Unitas in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. So, and yeah, it's it's a it was a weird weird route to to get where I am today. But you know, I. I have to say, I'm, I'm, I feel indebted to, to Davin. Um, I'm so glad that I went and did a master's. I really just found my niche. It's also through my master's that I, I met my partner. Um, she was at, in the coastal sciences program, which at the Gulf Coast Research Lab, which is, I guess, technically on the other side of Mississippi, um, that little bit that touches the, uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, okay. Um, so we lived about 40 minutes away from one another. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, like it's, I, yeah, I, I, I suppose I took a very indirect route um, to get where I am, uh, but I'm, oh, yeah. I'm happy about it. Like, yeah, the usual yeah. thing that comes up on this show is that it, it's people's pathway is a function of interest and opportunity, you know, mm-hmm. and there's only been two guests who have kind of said, oh, I knew since I was four. <laughs> that I wanted to do this that for pretty much everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. I forget how many episodes we've done now, but yeah, pretty <laughs> much everybody. It's just a function of those two, you know, interest and opportunity because exactly um, that's, it's, it's a, uh, it's reactive slightly. It's a reactive element to it. And it's only after somebody becomes successful that they sometimes go back and write that clean sounding narrative of like, mm-hmm. Oh, I just, everything made sense. And it clicked into place, which is an oversimplification for most people. And, it, yeah. you know, it misses, and it's, I think it's much more helpful for everyone to hear how messy it can be because that way, you know, before you start the process of getting into whatever professional field you want to get into, you kind of know, okay, I can expect some messiness now. I can expect mm-hmm. some, like, it's not necessarily going to be, step one, step two, step three, like a clean progression that uh, the people that you meet who say they have a clean progression, that's uh, it's unusual. That's unusual. Right. They're, yeah. I always wondered how they did that. Like my first advisor in astrophysics was like, well, yeah, I knew when I was four, I wanted to be a scientist. And then in high school, I decided astronomy. And so here I am. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know how you did that, but cool. <laughs> Right. I mean, Uh, like I knew that I wanted to be a scientist, but like the question was what kind of scientist? Yeah. So, and even, even like earth scientists, like what aspect of earth science? I mean, you have literally from the core well out into the atmosphere to Mm. choose from. So, and everything in between. I kind of want to do a coastal graduate masters, coastal systems, like (laughs) coastal oceanography masters. I'm very open ocean, you know, large scale. And I like that stuff, but it would be cool to learn more about, because I guess that the biogeochemistry is important everywhere, obviously, but the mm-hmm. coast has this, you know, real intersection of you know, the, I mean, the land's right there. It's spilling out nutrients all the time and interacting with, you know, what's happening in the sediments right there and mixing it. And it's so close, it's like all this, you know, the seafloor and the ocean and the land are also close and mixed up with each other and saltwater mm-hmm. marshes and it it also has kind of an appeal um because uh well we moved away when i was young but we lived in savannah was you know the first we lived oh, out yeah. on one of the islands um 
we actually lived really close to this getaway institute of oceanography you know which is yeah like yeah on one of the little islands um and i never um i didn't i visited there later as an oceanographer but i didn't like study there exactly mm-hmm. you know um anyway that's, that's just a diversion but uh no no, no. i but yeah. I, I totally agree like and the, the other cool thing about the coast is that it's i mean it's also it has that human component that's so critical mm. i mean majority of the world's population lives along the coastline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, actually one of the professors in my department, when I was presenting some research, he was like, well, what's the importance of this? And like the first thing that came out, came to mind was insurance, like mm-hmm. with hurricanes mm-hmm. and living along the coast, like this is critical stuff for insurance and, and keeping, you know, I, I, I think we should try and limit how much we develop along the coastline, but you know, if, if we're going to do it, we might as well keep people safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, it a coastal a coastal oceanography master's program would be fantastic. I mean, like it, it really does. In my, in my opinion, it really is probably one of the most interdis. It would be one of the most interdisciplinary degrees that you could possibly have. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the beauty I think of of taking these indirect routes as well. Is that you're interdisciplinary, but and you also can approach a problem from a um, a unique perspective. Yeah. You know. Um, you know, that's what, that's what I would tri- traditionally do in my like Spanish courses and Spanish civilization. For example, I talked about how, um, the geography of Spain was conducive for the, um, uh, the Muslim conquest of Spain in the, the 700 or no, sorry, the yeah 700s, oh, really? uh, late 700s. Yeah. Um, because, you know, on the North side, you have, uh, the, the mountains that act as a little bit of a blockade and the south side it's it's a little less so um i don't know how well well grounded that that was i was a junior in college so i might have been grasping at straws trying to get a paper in at like by midnight but um you know it it's still my 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 professor commented like oh this is a really unique take on on spanish history right there yeah and so well, for I mean, for college papers, you kind of try, just try a hypothesis and just see if, yep. you know, if you can make it convincing or not. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, and just you're kind of trying that process on for size, like seeing if you can get behind an idea and really defend it and find evidence mm-hmm. for it. Yeah, it's okay if it's not ultimately if it doesn't go anywhere. Ultimately, that's fine. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good. Well. Um, I'm afraid I'll have to go soon. I'm sorry about that, but no, oh, no worries, yeah, no worries. This has been a really fun chat. And yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I really do. Yeah, no, it's been good, and I I've enjoyed hearing more about your your pathway and what you're working on. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll meet in person at some point. You know, at, that would be uh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe I'm assuming like at an AGU or something. I mean, when we do start traveling again, I'm, I am going to mm-hmm. try to limit my travel even more than I was before. I already kind of was before the pandemic, but I, I think I'm going to be, try to be even more thoughtful about it. Um, Same. Yeah. I would I'd pick and choose which AGUs I, I would go to. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I would probably skip out on the Chicago one because, you know, Chicago in December <laughs> does not sound fun. <laughs> um, but, you know, the New Orleans AGU, definitely there for that. <laughs> be good. Yeah. Yeah. I went to an ocean sciences once there. It's a, it's a really good city to have a, have a meeting oh, yeah. in. Um, definitely. Yeah. The, 
you know, honestly, I, I'm kind of thinking about skipping. There's an ocean sciences every two years, right? And the next one is in, in Hawaii, which is oh, in some yeah. ways, it's like a really nice destination. But on the other hand, that's the other side of the planet. Right. <laughs> that's a lot of carbon to like go talk about my climate science research. I'm really, right. I'm scratching my head on that one. Like, I don't know if I should do that. Honestly, the yeah, that's the uh, that's the the continual struggle that I feel like we all have as climate scientists. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I won't I won't stress too much about EGU because that one is, I mean, I do need to keep going to some international conferences. Like that's that it, it is important. Like you got to do some of it. So that's EGU, I was actually thinking about submitting something to EGU. So hmm. we'll it's all virtual this year. So. Um, you know, I, I forget if they're doing like a small thing in person, but I think it's going to be mostly, mostly virtual this year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's what I, I saw that. And I saw that it was cheaper than AGU as well. It is, um, yeah. And so I, I was like, oh, well, you know, I can submit my hurricane research there. Um, I'm also, I probably should have said this earlier, but I'm also re working on a reconstruction of the uh, Bermuda high. Hmm. And so, um, depending on the stage of that, I, I would, Maybe submit that instead. So mm -hmm. who knows? I think I have what till March. So put an abstract or, in. Like actually, January. no, no, that's put right. January. Yeah. So, uh, so I'll probably do the hurricane stuff. The, the EGU deadline really sneaks up on you because it's like the I don't know beginning of January. So you oh, can man. get lulled into a false sense of security, and then the calendar so takes I, over. You you get back to work, and you're like, oh no. The oh man <laughs> it's right there yeah and i i think that's for the the deadline for the noah postdoc fellowship that i'm applying for mm. okay. it's like early january so yeah um yeah we'll 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 see we'll see yeah. what happens anything else we want to talk about no uh nothing comes to mind um just thanks again for for having me on and um yeah and i love the show like huh, i absolutely love it so huh. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm like oh, a man. huge fan. And oh. so cool. Um, yeah. So, and I like tell everybody, like, hey, if you haven't heard about the show, you should check it out. So, um, yeah. oh, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I hope, I don't know. I, I felt kind of selfish about how much I was enjoying all these conversations with like my colleagues and I <laughs> uh, decided we should share them. And, um, the result of that has been really nice. It's yeah, honestly, it seems like it's a good thing to do. So I'll just keep doing it, and we'll see where, oh, I love where it. we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it almost, it almost, especially in pandemic times, it it almost gives gives that sense of, uh, you know, how you'd you'd be in the hallway and you just bump into somebody and have that that conversation that then mm. sparks ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's comforting in that sense. It's that sense of familiarity, if you will, like back to that, just those, those days when we, everybody was in the same building and we didn't have to worry about COVID and, you know, right. we could still like bounce ideas off uh, one another and, and whatnot. Yeah, that's true. And also just as a listener, I mean, thinking back to my grad school days and, and even, even now too, but thinking back to my grad school days, um, I used to get a lot out of just listening to, you know, people talk about what they do, uh, mm -hmm. even if I didn't have that much to interject. It's pretty easy to get scientists talking, honestly, which I'm kind of, I'm really cheating as a podcaster. I'm cheating because <laughs> I'm like, I picked the easiest audience to get to talk. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> it's very easy to put quarters into people's jukeboxes and they will, they will go. 
<laughs> you know, work, work, work smart, not harder, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so start a start a podcast where <laughs> you can just put a quarter in and sit back and go, all right, I got. It. I like it. I like it. I mean, it's a great, it's a great formula. So, uh, but yeah, like I, I really think it's a, it's a good, and you know, as a, as a grad student, it, it means a lot to like, you know, know that people who are big in the field um, are, are humans too. Like, mm -hmm. and that there is, there is a, a limit to our knowledge. Um, and so that's why we collaborate. Um, and you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be you don't have to be an expert to be the expert, if you will, mm. for lack of yeah. a better term. That's right. You um, you might become an expert in a very narrow window, mm -hmm. and it's sometimes surprising how how narrow that window can can be. Definitely. Uh, yeah, that's right. Good. Well, thanks, Josh. It's been really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, I love the show. And so thanks for, thanks for including me with it or on yeah. it. Um, yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate that. Yep. Well, Have a great day. You too. Talk to you later. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. There you almost have it. I actually have one more clip from Josh that I would like to play. Josh wanted to go into a little bit more detail. He sent me this after we recorded the interview, he wanted to go in a bit more detail on a couple of things. So I'm very happy to include the clip here. Here's a little bonus segment from Josh. This is in regard to tropical cyclones and climate change. My answer starts now. We've only now been able to start really doing attribution studies for hurricanes. I know there was one published in GRL that talked about how Hurricane Harvey back in 2017 was exacerbated by climate change. Uh, the rainfall specifically. I think the USGS was actually able to measure the ground in Houston sink and then rebound as the waters receded. It was insane. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, I think paleotempestology has largely refrained from focusing on the anthropogenic climate change component, at least early on. Now it's starting to show up in the literature more and more. I know that I am also discussing my reconstruction in the context of climate change, at least a little bit, um, in addition to a few other perspectives. But I think you're right about that. We're just trying to parse out some of the long-term controls and tropical cyclone activity. What's driving it? What are the climate controls? What changes to the climate system, regional or global, um, uh, drive that storm variability or storm frequency? What I think is cool about the field is that it kind of incorporates exploration, at least in my eyes, reminiscent of old school natural history. Growing up, I always thought that was co so cool. Anyway, now that now we're doing that with paleo hurricanes, really trying to work out the controls over different time scales in this relatively young field. What we see in the records are cyclic behavior or cyclic patterns, which can be linked to major changes in climate patterns, but also there is admittedly quite a bit of stochastic behavior too. And that's what we're really trying to get at in paleotypicology. What is the natural behavior? Um, as we continue to tease that out, we can start exploring changes over the instrumental record and get into the future of hurricanes, basically adding context to this all. Sure, as our, our records, as I said, can contextualize re recent storms. I think it's safe to say that Katrina was unprecedented. Yes, there does seem to be a storm or two about 2,000 years ago that had a higher relative flooding intensity or storm surge than Katrina. But it's still safe to say that that storm was unprecedented, especially in the historical record. Anyways, we continue improving our understanding our, of hurricane climate interactions over different timescales via paleotempestology. We can contextualize current and future TC trends in, in a warming climate. 
Also, I think the current understanding regarding the future of storms still holds true. There should be an overall decline in frequency, but an increase in intensity as the most intense storms so category four or five, maybe category three is included. I don't really know. Um, anyway, become more frequent. I'm not sure I need to revisit the literature. I've been focused on the AMO pretty heavily lately for my paper. Here you have it, my conversation with Josh Breggy. Big thanks to Josh for coming on the show. You can find him at Prehistormic on Twitter. Here come the other credits. Thanks to Sean Williams Page for editing services, very much appreciated. Thanks to Lillian Blair for audio engineering. Chelsea Baker for support on Patreon. And thanks to all of you for downloading, listening, subscribing, whatever you do to access the program. So uh, yeah, it's been... Um, we have some nice episodes coming up. We have a live episode that we have recorded as part of the Cambridge Festival. That's coming up in the near future. That's a conversation where we talk about artificial intelligence. We talk about machine learning. We talk about the future of polar observations. Very excited to bring that one to you. Yeah, okay. I think that's all I need to say in the outro. Just let me say that it um, has been a real pleasure doing these episodes, recording these conversations with people. I feel so privileged and I feel so grateful to have had this opportunity to um, have these nice science and life chats with people. It's been such a lifeline during the pandemic, during the uh, repeated lockdowns and in the middle of all the stress. So I've so much appreciated working on this podcast and I hope that you listeners have enjoyed it as well. Um, And thanks for your patience. Again, I know I'm not always able to get these out every two weeks, but I will do my best and I'll let you know if it changes in the future. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye.